Um, so if it feels like you're coming in late to the conversation, I'll try and do my best to kind of make it all kind of make sense. I'll do a brief recap, but then try and treat it kind of a standalone. But if this stuff does interest you and you want to continue the conversation a little bit more, uh, there's a website you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. But the series is titled On the Road, um, a series on restless hearts. Uh, and the idea being this, that we are all at some point in life or throughout our life on the proverbial road of trying to figure out, you know, um, what is going to bring, we're on a pursuit of happiness quest. We're trying to find joy, fulfillment in things. So we, uh, we marry, we, we, uh, we buy things, we date, we get jobs, we move places, we do things to try and be like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to maximize my time here and, and do this thing. And, and, and every once in a while, we're, we're hit with the reality that life tends to underdeliver on its promises. And, uh, and, and this isn't kind of a, a new thing. Uh, what, we, what we've said is this has been kind of, we're following along with an author who wrote a book uh, 1,600 years ago. Um, his name was uh, St. Augustine. He wrote a book called The Confessions or His Confessions. Um, one of the most uh, influential books in Western Christianity, like seriously, like next to the Bible and New Testament scriptures, it's like that and then, uh, and then this. And, and he writes in such a way, he, he like puts his, his confessions, his audible confessions down on paper uh, because at late in life, um, he is a, a bishop in a town called Hippo in North Africa and he wants to help his, if there's any, if there's anything you can gain from discovering or walking through the failures of, of life that I've been through. And by the way, he had been uh, uh, an influential speaker, very, very wealthy, very, very famous, very, very, all of the things going for him that people typically think that's when I'll be happy. And he's like, let me just tell you um, that even in, even when people would look at me and think, well, he's, ha- he's got it all together. He's got this going on or whatever. I'm, I'm still broken on the inside. I still ran into so many dead ends of restlessness in my life that I just, I had this feeling of not here. I'm never gonna be famous. I'm never gonna get what I want in North Africa. I've gotta move to Rome. And then once I moved to Rome, I was like, it's not here either. It's Milan. That's where the emperor is. And I'm realizing everywhere I go, it's always the next thing. It's the grass is always green on the other side, whatever. And he says continually, I, 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 I fell, I kept thinking, what, this is what I really want. Uh, and, and now, looking back on life and being a little bit introspective on this, I can realize that those things were motivated by wrong issues. And so he goes, let me talk about what I think are natural desires that everybody has, uh, and then let me say what I think you might really want when you think that you want blank, right? So when you think you want freedom, when you think you want, it's just, I want to just want to belong. I, I just want to do this. I just want to do this. Maybe this is what you really want. And he writes it in such a way that I, I really do feel like I like, I liken it to the culture of the ethos of what we're trying to do as a church. Um, when he writes this, he's not preaching at anybody. Uh, when you read the book, it's very much, he's dealing with his own issues and you are invited to try it on for size and see if his solutions might work for you. And you have the freedom to be able to be like, that doesn't work for me, I pass, it's not what I'm, I'm signing up for. Uh, in the same way, that I, I really do think like the way that I've learned best and the way that we try and do things is I'm trying to find voices that resonate with me, that when I probably try it on, it fits and it feels right and it moves, I don't, I don't wanna move forward with this. So he offers us an, an example of what do I want when I really want this, what, and discussing motives and whatever. So. Um, uh, this week, uh, w- the topic is this idea of what do I really want when I say that I want to live? And live being like this sense of live it up. When I, when I, I want to maximize my experience, I want to do life in a way that really truly feels like life, that it's not mundane, that it's like there's the ebbs and the flows of this. I just really want to, I really want to live. Uh, whether it's I feel like there's like a, 
metaphorical countdown going on in my life and I want to maximize my years that I have left or, or I, just, I just want to live in the here and now. I want to do something. I want to try and um, die well, right? And we would never say that. That sounds very morbid. But that's essentially kind of this idea, this counter thing is the opposition to, uh, if, in order to die well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to learn what it means to live well. So what does it mean to want to live well in this way? And so we're going to be talking a little bit about death today. And I, I know it's not really what you um, probably signed up for <laughs> coming into a church around the holiday season. You're like, there's no mangers. Why are you not talking about like the wise men or shepherds or anything like that? Uh, but I think, I think Christmas time is a real interesting time to talk about um, death and living, because uh, we're about to go into a season um, where after the holiday season, you go into January, and then everybody starts showing up at the gym again and having these ideas of what we're really going to, we're going to really, we're going to live in 2020, right? I mean, that's 19, uh, we, we had some financial setbacks, we had some debt that we didn't know about, we had somebody get sick in the family, we had to spend some time caring for them. The timing-wise, the job-wise, it just wasn't fulfilling, but but man, we're super optimistic about 2020. So this is, this is where we're going forward uh, with this. So what does that mean to really want to live in that way? It's interesting. Our uh, cultural ethos towards um, death and dying has shifted over, over the years. Um, previously in generations, like this idea of um, science, the advancement of science and, and what we know about and with the advances in medicine and all of that, we kind of we thought, I think, for a while, we had this idea that we could potentially avoid death or at least delay it for an extended period of time. Like we, we just, we were seeing like the you know uh, combustible engine come along. We're seeing a penicillin happen. Polio just eradicated all of this kind of like major, major advances through technology and medicine. And and there was like this thing in the back of our minds of man, what does this potentially mean for when it comes to death and dying, right? We, we, someday, we, this thing of when you read either sci-fi from 40, 50 years ago or just, you know, I don't know, just uh, this outlooking, forward-looking, progressive thinking, sort of what about, what if this, what if this, maybe someday we'll have flying cars, cheeseburgers that taste like cheeseburgers but are like actually good for you, right? Uh, maybe, maybe someday we'll have a Seattle baseball team that makes it to the playoffs and maybe someday will never die, right? And, and tongue in cheek, because we kind of feel like that's never going to be avoided. But there was a sense in which for a long time, people thought, you know, I know the ex- life expectancy is, I don't know where it is in America currently, but like with advances in medicine, it would not be unrealistic to be like, maybe we'll live to be 100, maybe 110, 120. We have these, these big things for us. And, and then like all of this stuff took place and we don't have to fly in cars and cheeseburgers still are bad for you and all of that. But um, we look at it and we go, um, okay, so maybe, maybe we will never avoid dying and we'll never live to be 100. Because we, we, realistically, we look at it and be like, who wants to live to 100 anyways, right? Like, I don't want to do that. So the shift then went towards living in a way that we're forever young, right? Alphaville in the 80s taught us forever young, I want to be forever young. And I'm not going to sing it for you because, um, you know, whatever. But uh, we, yeah, exactly. we lowered our sights a little bit. Like, we're like, okay, it's not that we're not going to die, but perhaps we can remain forever young. And so we lowered our sights a little bit, and maybe our standards for what qualifies as good music, perhaps for two. Um, And then now we've shifted, and now sort of like this new millennial kind of way of going, all right, we know we're we're all going to die. We know that in spite of the advances that we've had... um, uh, it's 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 better than what it was for sure, and we've looked at the the we've looked at we've watched people try and cling on 
too long towards um, looking forever young, uh, whether it's the way that their face looks or the way that they act, and you're like, can you just act like you're 50? Because you're 50, or you know, 60 or whatever, and you're trying to remain young, and we see it, and we see the, the lack of authenticity with that, and we've become a little bit more critical or critiquing of that sort of lifestyle. And so we've said instead, we have this existential angst about us now too, right? We're, we're struggling with why do we even exist and what's this all about? Uh, and, and I haven't heard an author really, really like say this, but like there's a little bit more pessimism when it comes to all of this. And it's almost as if you get this feeling of what's the use of living forever if you're all alone on a Sunday? I just want to live for a while, for, I just want to live for real for a little while right here. I don't know what this looks like. I don't know. I don't think I want to live forever. And I don't, this forever young thing, whatever. But for this moment, I want to live it up. I want to do whatever I can with this. We've sort of made peace with death. We'll settle for a little bit of fame, a little bit of notoriety, and then maybe a lot of hashtag memories. Um, I don't get asked to do funerals a lot anymore. What I get asked to do a lot of are celebrations of life. We've kind of changed the language on it because it reflects, again, more of an attitude towards um, living it up in this moment. We want a legacy that outlives us. We want people to remember us when we're gone. And it's like this weird, remember us when we're gone. And yet, when we look at the track record of how that works out for most people who have existed throughout humanity, um, the, the odds of people remembering you when you're gone outside of your family are real close to nil. You know what I mean? Like, when was the last time you watched a movie from the 1950s? I mean, it's just like... Those people in that time period, everybody knew who Clark Gable was. Everybody knew who whatever. Now it's like, I think he was in, was it Gone with the Wind or Casablanca? I can't remember. You know, it's like you're struggling with this. When was the last time that you read a book from an author who lived over 100 years ago? And I know some of you are thinking, well, the Bible and gold star for you. But that's the exception. That's where I know you're in church. You're supposed to say that. But when was the last time you voluntarily read an author from over 100 years ago? Probably few and far between would be my guess on that. This week I was listening to a, uh, one of my favorite podcasts, one of the ones I listen to every week. It's called Against All Odds of Cousin Sal. It's a sports gambling podcast thing, and, and it does odds and whatever. And in it, he talks about, he brings up this topic of conversation for this roundtable discussion. On, uh, it, it was um, which Hall of Fame quarterback doesn't deserve to be in the NFL Hall of Fame. And the reason it was brought on is because there's discussion of is Eli Manning a Hall of Fame quarterback? Yes, he won two Super Bowls, but he sucks. And so, does he really deserve to be in there? Uh, he's got a negative. He's got a minus five hundred uh, win loss average. Anyways, uh, they begin to list off names of quarterbacks who are in the Hall of Fame, and I didn't recognize any of them except for the right answer, which is Troy Aikman. So uh, that's the only one that I remembered. Um, let's just jab at Dallas Cowboys fans. Anyways, all right. Uh, I and I realized at one point. There was a consensus in the industry that these players had done so much, they deserve to go in the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and be forever commemorated on a plaque, and now 40, 50, 60 years, I mean, I don't even know. I'm listening to podcasts, and I go, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. So this, like, this idea of, I just want somebody to remember me when I'm gone, like, that's like a weird, we know that the track record for that isn't that great, so what do we do? with all of this. We have this unique relationship with death in our culture. We're trying to, with our existential angst and anxiety, we're trying to figure out what does, and I don't think we have a great sort of grasp on this. We don't like the visibility of death. We don't like to see it. Cemeteries used to be positioned in the courtyard of churches. 
In fact, if you go, I think it's Dayton. It might be Waitsburg. It's one of those small towns uh, on the way out. There's on the, on the main drag off to the left, there's an old church and there's a cemetery surrounding it. And you drive by there and you think now, you look at it and you go, creepy, right? That, but that's, that's, and you think now we should go there and visit on Halloween. But you used to think at that point, that was how on your way to church to be able to go worship and, and be religious on, on, during a weekend service or whatever, you would walk past the cemetery of a lot of times family members, past family members, and it would remind you of the futility or the temporal nature of life, right? That we are all on a path towards this. There is this common bond between us that we all die. Therefore, I'm going to worship a God who is in control of all of this. And, and, and now we don't. Now what we do is we put cemeteries in as far, the far reaches as we can, right? Bypass highways, King City truck stops, Weirdly, Creekstone housing development. I don't know how that one works, but for the most part, as far away from, as possible, and then we try and never drive past those things. It's, 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 it's weird how we do this. We don't like the visibility of death. Rarely now do people, or rarer, do people pass away in their homes surrounded by, around the clock by family. Now it's typically hospital rooms with visiting hours and machines beeping incessantly. We don't like the visibility of dying either. Not, not only do we like the visibility of death, we don't like the visibility of dying either. So the privileged and the padded expend their energy and reserves on the creeping harbinger of death we call aging. We buy all the creams, all of the hair dyes, maybe not all of us, but some of us do. We pull back pieces of our skin and convince ourselves, but absolutely nobody else, that this looks completely normal. Hospital rooms make us uneasy. Uh, conversations with people who are close to dying are, make us, uh, like, it's awkward because we're not sure what to talk about um, because we're like, is it insensitive to talk about my summer vacation plans? I think it might be. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. And so for us, it feels like uh, rough, uncharted waters. And yet, it has been fertile ground for many, many philosophers and people whose writings and books we actually admire who lead us into this unknown area and talk about death in such a way that actually engages us to live a better version of what we call life. Some of your favorite movies take on death and dying, and we become and we walk away feeling more alive as a result of it. Martin Heidegger writes, wrote a book called Being in Time, and in it he writes this, when it comes to death in general, we're very certain that everyone dies, but when it comes to our own death, we are fugitives from the truth. We run from facing it. And we read this and we go, ah, that like says something I never was able to put words to, but fugitives from the truth that we run from the fact that we're trying to face it. And his, his goal in this book is to try and lead us towards what he would de de determine an authentic life. In this authentic life, to be truly authentic, we must face up to and live in light of our own mortality. And it's not written from a religious perspective, but what I'm going to try and talk about today is showing you that Augustine figured this out hundreds and hundreds of years ago as a way of saying, yes, to truly live well, you must learn and we must learn levels of our mortality that are remain within our perspective as we go through this thing called life. The modern allergy to death is a stark contrast to Christianity's almost morbid comfort with mortal remains. Um, it's interesting, as much as we try and disassociate like a weekend service or a church from, from death, um, many of the churches uh, built over in you know, European history back, uh, um, the old churches, the ones that have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, feature the remains, or, or, or on signage they'll say, beneath these floors lies the remains of saints, 
dot, dot, dot. So St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City um, supposedly has the bones of, uh, of St. Peter. Um, my, my parents took me to Jerusalem when I was a sophomore in high school. And um, we got to do the whole Holy Land tour type stuff. And I remember it vividly. And one of the places I remember um, is visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre of the Virgin Mary, the tomb of Virgin Mary. And I remember it because if you go online and you Google it, um, all of the, uh, or Wikipedia, all of the pictures of this are taken with the, like the fisheye bubble lens because it's an incredibly small space. And I, I just remember like, it was like, like cramped almost and there was tons of people going there to go visit the tomb uh, of St. Mary. And I was like, I was a sophomore, so I was like, cool, let's go, you know, <laughs> let's go get a Sprite somewhere else. Uh, not, not all that thrilled with it, but for a lot of times in, in church history, this, is, this has been a big deal. Like they, they, they do this and it's more than just a memento mori for them, which is this idea of reminding ourselves of our mortality. For them on a lot of these, almost all of these, is some sort of a, a, a script in Latin written about how um, uh, surrounding these shrines are words that bleed with hope and expectation. Here lies the remains of so-and-so, but waiting to be reunited with Christ. Almost all of them have this idea of pointing toward, uh, offering up something to these pilgrims who come and visit these places, a sense of, yes, they died. Yes, they died well. They lived well. And they continue to hold out hope and belief in, uh, in a resurrection that life goes uh, beyond this life. And it's interesting because it offers an opportunity for us to understand that to live well or to die well, to, to, to be on the path towards dying well means to live well. A lot of times I think we're afraid to die because I'm not sure I've actually lived well. I mean, this is kind of the uh, anxiety and angst about this. I, I don't know that I've lived well. Perhaps that feeds into my fear of dying. Hannah Arendt wrote a book called Love and St. Augustine, and she says this and this, the trouble with human happiness is that it is constantly beset by fear fear of loss. It is no longer so much a question of coming to terms with death, but life. My, my, my fear, the reason that perhaps I'm not living well is because I'm so fearful of what I might lose. I've never really come to terms with death and dying, not just of people, but just loss of things, the death of a relationship, a death of a dream, a death of, a, a, of um, like this thing that I had. And, and, and I, I struggle with loss in that way, and perhaps it's affecting my ability to live well. If I haven't learned to love well, I'll never experience how to live well, and I'll live in fear of not dying well. So to summarize her philosophy or her thought on this, if you're writing down notes, this would be kind of the thesis for uh, today. How to die is really a question of how to love. Augustine would say, you have this obsession with, with living well. You, what, what does it mean? Uh, what, what do you really want when you want to live well? Perhaps it comes to an understanding of what it means to love in spite of inevitable loss. Perhaps how to die is really a question of how to love. And throughout his confession, specifically books four and uh, in there, he deals with uh, three different types of loss, uh, or, or two here and then one in another section of the book. But, um, and it's almost like a personal evolution that he's going to show us about how I handled it wrong, how I handled it correctly, when in terms of loving other people, and then a, a, a picture of him pastoring other people to kind of help them understand it. So he's going to show us failure, he's going to show us personal success, 
and then he's going to teach us or show us and, and look at uh, a way of getting beyond this for other people. So first and foremost, how he struggled with all of these things. Um, in, in book four of his confessions, he talks about a friend who he respected. Um, Augustine was very, very successful. And sometimes on the pathway to success, um, you, or so I've heard anyways, um, you struggle with friends because um, you just feel like other people don't measure up. When you have conversations with them, it feels at a different level. And then you meet somebody and um, when, when the two of you talk, it feels different. And there's a connection there. And there's, um, there's something that is missing and you, you love it and you crave it. And, uh, and so he meets this friend and uh, they both share, one of the common things that they share is they both have parents, specifically moms, who uh, are obsessed with religion um, and are trying to shove it down the throats of their kids and their kids are uh, too smart for it. Uh, we've evolved past this, mom. That's your backwater religion. And they would talk about dealing with moms who are overbearing in that way. More about Augustine's mom next week, by the way. We're going to finish up this series. My wife's going to help me uh, do one. It's going to be really, really great. But um, his friend fell sick with fever and uh, to the point where he lost consciousness. Um, and his mom, out of desperation, went and got the body and had him baptized without him really knowing it. Um, and then he gets better. He makes a turn for the, the better, uh, comes to. And here's the story about his mom baptizing him. And uh, after he gets better, Augustine has this conversation with him, be like, isn't that hilarious that your mom thought that like, like water is supposed to help you with like after this life or something like that. Like she, she thought it was conditional upon salvation, yada, yada, yada. And so he, he, uh, he has this conversation with them and the son responds to Augustine in a way that doesn't, or the friend responds in a way that doesn't, that kind of throws him off. He like defends his mom. Hey, I don't necessarily have to believe that that was, had any effect on my, me religiously, but you're making fun of my mom for caring about me and uh, and for doing this, and I, and I want to live into the type of person that she is trying to make me out to be, even if that's, he didn't convert, he didn't become religious in that way, but just like, he had a, he had a unique perspective on it. And as a result, Augustine describes how it actually fractured the relationship. And we walked away differently. He had felt like I attacked his mother, and uh, as a result, we really didn't hash things, and we never got a chance to reconnect because he did end up passing away from the thing. He got sick again and passed away. And so he's dealing with the loss of a friend that he really cared about and had a connection to, but also the fact that he screwed up the relationship and took ownership of this. And he writes down in reflection of this, everything on which I set my gaze was death. If you've ever talked to somebody who uh, days earlier, moments earlier, or maybe even weeks earlier, uh, lost a loved one that they had a real strong connection with, this is the kind of language that's used. It feels like everything I look at is just death. Nothing is great about this. Incredibly pessimistic. My hometown became a torture to me. I found myself heavily weighed down by a sense of being tired of living and scared of dying. He whom I had loved as if he would never die was now dead. He whom I loved who I thought and I acted as if, because we're young, right? And when we're young, we never think about dying and, and whatever. I, we, we just lived in that way. I loved him as if he would never die, but now he finds him dead. 
What madness, he would go on to say a few verses later, what madness not to understand how to love human beings with awareness of the human condition. What, what madness it is for me to put too much weight into this to not truly understand how this works out. The problem isn't that he loved his friend. The problem is how he did. And again, Augustine saying, I had a misguided love. Try this on, see if it fits. See if you've ever put so much weight into a relationship, lost that person, and then you feel lost at sea and everything that you look at feels like death to you. And then he goes on, I was so wretched that I felt a greater attachment to my life of misery than to my dead friend. Here's what he's saying here. All of a sudden, I turned it to my life of misery rather than my dead friend. There is a sense in which, through the process of grief, we can take on too much ownership. And he goes, it became a thing about me. It became selfish. Even though my friend is the one that died, I'm the one who got the unfair shake. I'm the one struggling with this. I'm, this is, he says, this is what we do when we grieve. Here's how you know if this has been a misguided love for you. When you've lost something that you've loved, and then all of a sudden everything around you feels like death, and being at home feels like torture. And, and, and it becomes about me. How could you do this to me? Either this person who died or a God who may or may not exist or whatever. He's struggling with this and he's realizing this is how I've mishandled uh, death, the inevitability of death, but I've loved them. I've loved this person in such a way that I put way too much weight into this. And he's saying, he, 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 as he recounts this and he confesses this, he's realizing it's natural to grieve. It's not that I shouldn't have grieved for the loss of somebody. That's completely natural. But I, I was not able to couple it with a sense of hope and expectation about something beyond this, about a God who is a creator, who is a, a person who is in control of this and has the ability to gather all of this and make sense of this for me. I'm just out there with nothing, and he's like, and, 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 and I realize in this that I, I feel lost. And, and then fast forward. So that's a, a bad way of handling it. Fast forward to his mother's death. His mother, Monica, ends up dying. And in this death, you see a little bit of a personal progression. Somebody who he loves like enormously, right? He has, he has disagreements about her um, trying to like make him force her religion onto him. But he respects her as a mom and, and at this point, uh, at the point at which she died, he had gone through the process of conversion. He'd gotten baptized and baptized his son and, and, and all of this. And he realized in his prayers to uh, God during the grieving and mourning process for her, he refers to his mother continuously as your servant, Monica, who happened to also be my mom. The language in this is not like my mom died. I lost something that, that I loved. Like he, he continually points to her and, res, and out of respect for her and as a follower of Christ and oh my goodness, she was amazing. She prayed for me, her heart for me through my wandering years, disappointed her over and over and over again. I know that she was continuously disappointed in me and she never gave up on me. And that speaks to her credit as a follower of you and her belief in you that you were in control the entire time. He loved her, but he loved the things about her that reflected her relationship with God. Not, he's like, I was able to make it not about the selfishness of me. How could you take this away from me? He looks at it and goes, this was a gift. Thank you for the opportunity to know her as my mom. Thank you for the opportunity for creating somebody like her to give me a light to uh, her persistence 
reflects a, 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 a thing about me that, that I, I know I need. It challenges me in this way. And later on, you see this, as I mentioned, in a way that he begins to pastor other people. So he's gone from, uh, it was a loss, it was devastating to me. It was a loss that I celebrated the time that I had with her. And then he moves on towards this scenario where he's now, he has left his, uh, his job working for the emperor in Milan. He's gone back home to North Africa to go be a church. He literally gave up a posh life in the, in the seat of the empire to go back to a backwater town and be a pastor, a bishop, technically, uh, of a series of churches in North Africa. And he gets a letter from, one day from a woman uh, named uh, Sapita. Her brother had been a deacon in uh, Augustine's church and had recently passed away, and she's grieving the loss of her brother, whom she loved dearly. And she sends him a letter, and she sends him a, uh, a cloak or a tunic, uh, something that she had made for her, for her brother, um, and he would never wear because he passed away before she could give it to him. And so um, we, have a, we, we don't have her letter to him, but we do have a copy of his letter back to her. And in this letter back to this woman, as he's operating as kind of like a, a, a pastor, he's uh, her pastor, a pastor in that area, he writes this opening line of his letter, I've accepted the tunic that you sent, and when I wrote this, I had actually already begun to wear it. <laughs> Who knows if it fit? It wasn't designed for him. It's made by somebody. You ever bought something at a craft fair and you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with this. You know what I mean? Like, I, he, But he loves her to the point where he's trying to let her know your labor is not in vain. Thank you for the tunic. I know it wasn't meant for me, but I'm as I'm writing you this letter, I'm wearing it and I'm thankful for it. Not only does he assure her in, in that way, in a, in a tangible uh, way, he meets her in her mourning and he says this, it is of course reason for tears that you no longer see as you once did your loving brother. It is natural to grieve. You've lost somebody that you loved, but let your heart be lifted up for the love by which Timothy loved and loves you has not perished. That love remains preserved in its repository and is hidden with Christ and Lord. It's natural to grieve, but look up. It's natural to be distraught and feel like you've lost, but we, we as followers of Christ, retain a hope and an expectation that there is life beyond this life. He, he, he does his, his best job to comfort her in, in, in a physical way, by wearing the tunic, but then also in a spiritual way of saying, but look at that, that love that he had for you and that the love that you had for him, it remains, it's still there. It's, I know it seems cliche and trite, to, that idea of, you know, well, I lost my dad, but someday we'll, 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 have, we'll, we'll, do, we'll golf in heaven. We'll, we'll watch the games like we always used to do. We'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. And I, I know it sounds like a little bit um, pie in the sky-ish, and, and it's not meant to remove uh, responsibility for, like, from this earth, but it, what it does is it, it really is a hope for us. Like, there's a re, Augustine would say, there's a, there's a legitimacy to that hope that you have that theoretically, standing back from it, it's not your dad that died, you can be like, well, who knows? I mean, you know, it's, it feels like very final. It feels like we're not sure what it looks like beyond this. But when, it's, when it's you, listen, when it's your dad, when it's your grandpa, when it's your grandma, when it's something like that, there is something in you that wants it to be real, even if I can't ever get my mind to believe that. And Augustine would say, that is normal and it's natural. And it's given in you. It has been imprinted on you. God, a God, the God created that inside of you. So what is it that you really want when you want to live? 
You want to live in such a way that there's an awareness of life in the way that it looks. There's an awareness of death and what it means to us, that it is, that it, that, that it is inevitable, that it happens, but it's not the end. And that he, he would say that that would then change how you live now. He would say that, that then all of a sudden, there is a, a way of living that only comes out with a true and proper understanding of death where you would go, listen, this is just, it's just money. It's just a job. It's just this. Like there are things that more, are more important than this, that what I do with all of this temporary stuff matters eternally. Therefore, I'm going to live differently now because of that. Augustine would say that's so incredibly important. And he pulls this at the, in his letter, he, this idea of being hidden with Christ the Lord. Colossians chapter three, verse two, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae. Uh, and, and as he writes this, he, he spends the first two chapters uh, basically talking about identity in Christ and then spends the last two uh, talking about what to do in light of it. Uh, and, and in this section, this, this is the like commissioning section. This would be the go and do this, like live in this way in light of this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above. Like you, Christians, new Christians, followers of Christ, it means living in such a way where you look at things and be like, it's just a car. It's just material stuff. It's just money. It's just this. It's just this. It's not important in light of this. Set your mind on higher things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Language of baptism, language of um, not physical death, but you've died to your old self and your new life is hidden with Christ in God. That's literally what Augustine just wrote in this letter, hidden with Christ in God, which has so much mystery to it. There's so many different commentaries and thoughts written about what that actually means. But I think the follow-up line speaks to this, like because Paul feels like he's got a perspective on it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory, that there is something beyond this thing. The hope of enduring love, a love stronger than death, is not some natural immortality. We're not talking about immortality. It is a life bought by the death of God, the resurrection of the crucified, which now yields hope as a spoil of victory over grace. So what is it that we want when we want to live. It is, Augustine would say, that is a natural thing. That, is, that God gave that in you. And it's best done. Try this on for size. It is best done when you have a proper and true perspective of death. I think an understanding of death can help you understand what it would look like to live well. So may we, may we, maybe even in the midst of grief and pain, live with our eyes lifted toward a greater hope. May we be a church that understands that even at Christmas time to really truly live is to have a perspective on death. To live well means understanding what it would take to die well.